Uh, people often ask me how the Petersham church plant is going. It's a great question, but it is quite hard to answer. How do you measure the health or the strength of a group of God's people? I suspect what most people are interested in is progress. Is there growth? Is there change? Is there evidence that God's at work? But that begs another question. How do you measure progress? Is it about building programs? I guess by that measure we've built some stuff. Is it about the number of people who attend church? Or how many are serving in ministries? Or how many people have been converted? Is it about generosity? Uh, Whether their giving is growing? Is it about how many kids there are? Uh, If that's the measure, then Petersham is going really well. There's lots of kids. Or perhaps it's about things that are more difficult to measure. How much people love one another. Uh, Whether people are on mission. Whether they're looking to share Jesus in their lives. Or whether they're growing in prayerfulness. Or joy. Or maturity. Now as we think about ourselves, they're great uh, things to be looking for. Great signs that God's at work. Uh, We all have a hunger to see things growing, Christian things growing, things that change for the better. It's encouraging uh, because it's evidence that God's kingdom is growing. Now that was the same for Nehemiah. Uh, He was a Jew living in Babylon. His ancestors had been exiled there about 130 years previously. Babylon was all he'd ever known. But he wants to know how things are going back in Jerusalem back in Israel. And just like us, he was longing for evidence that God was at work, that God was building his kingdom. You can see that in the first few verses of chapter 1. Nehemiah, it's an Old Testament book that really is a diary, if you hadn't uh, sort of noticed that. It's a diary that's set in the, the final stages of Old Testament history. It's somewhere around 400 B.C., Now, it's a time when the worst had happened, when Israel had been crushed, its people scattered, uh, the Temple of Solomon was just a heap of rubble and the walls of Jerusalem were just scattered stones. But in the 90-odd years or so before Nehemiah's time, there'd been this flicker of hope. Uh, A remnant had gone back. Uh, A group, pioneers, it was really like a church plant, I guess, and the, uh, the, the, first the altar had been rebuilt and then the temple. Uh, we saw that in the book of Ezra that we looked at uh, a few months ago. But that's, that was decades previously. And the Jews who'd remained in Babylon, well, they hadn't heard much recently. Had there been any progress? How was the new church plant going? Or had it been more about survival? And so here's Nehemiah, this expat Jew working in a far-off country, and he opens his diary one day in the month of Kislev, and he starts writing. While I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. Personally, things are going well for Nehemiah, but his heart lies somewhere else. Jerusalem, a city in ruins. 445 BC, when uh, Nehemiah's writing this stuff, it's maybe 70 years after the temple had been rebuilt. 
if you want to connect that with Ezra, it was about 13 years after Ezra had arrived back in Jerusalem. And so from the end of the book of Ezra to the start of the book of Nehemiah, there's about 12 years. So Hanani and his friends, they get back from their tour of Judah and Nehemiah can't wait to ask them, how's progress? How are the people? How's the city itself? Well, the news is not good, verse 3. Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Now, now that news is, is not new. Uh, what he really means is that the walls and the gates are, are still broken down. The disgrace is 70 years have gone by since the temple was rebuilt and nothing else had changed. It's heartbreaking news. And so Nehemiah sits down and weeps and he mourns for Jerusalem and he fasts for some days. And at the end of those days he prays. And you can see what his prayer is there in what's the rest of our chapter 1. It's a prayer on behalf of his people, the people of Israel who've suffered for their sins and hopefully have learned the lesson. Now, will you notice in the midst of a whole bunch of other observations about the prayer that this is a confident prayer? It's a prayer based on who God is, not who Israel is. It's a prayer based on one simple fact, that God keeps his word. Do you see it there in verse 5? O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him. God is a God who keeps his promise. The only problem is Israel didn't, which Nehemiah admits in his prayer. The reason they were exiled from Israel in the first place comes down to one word, unfaithfulness. Nehemiah says in verse 6, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. You told us what to do, and we didn't do it. And so the Jews were scattered, they were exiled, Jerusalem was destroyed. Now, even though they've returned, things are not what they should be. That's the reason Nehemiah's despairing. It it wasn't a true freedom. They were still ruled over by Persia. Plenty of Jews were still out of the land. They were still in Babylon, like Nehemiah himself. And Jerusalem itself was a mess. Nehemiah wants things to change. He prays for things to change. And he grounds his prayer, he grounds his hope for the future in what God has already promised. In places like Deuteronomy chapter 30, in fact, he actually reminds God of what he's promised, which is interesting to remind God of something. It's not like God forgets, but look at what he says in verse 8. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations, but if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now, in a sense, God's already done that, hasn't he? But Nehemiah, I think, must be connecting that condition of repentance to the mess that Jerusalem is still in. 
And so it's the present generation who need to own that repentance. It's not just their forefathers who who caused the problem. This present generation need to own the repentance that God asked for. And so Nehemiah believes that if the people, including Nehemiah himself, if they turn from their sin, then God, because his character is to keep his promise, God is just waiting to forgive. And he will bring the blessing again and he will restore their fortunes in a new way. Now that confidence is connected to the end of his prayer and we get to the meaty end of the, of the prayer or the pointy end of the prayer in verse 11, give your servant success today. Because you see, Nehemiah wants to play his part in God bringing blessing. He's got a plan. It's got something to do with his job, which we find out in the very last sentence of the chapter is cupbearer to the king. It's more than just a servant, it's, it's head of the security detail, basically. Which is interesting for a foreigner to, to be in that position. He's got powerful connections. Uh, When you want something done that's big, it's good to know people. But this whole chapter raises the question. Uh, It's a shadow that hangs over the whole book. And I think it's introduced here in chapter 1 because it's such a crucial question. Will they repent? If God's favour depends on Israel's repentance, will they actually do it? Are they ready to return to the Lord with all their hearts? Look at Nehemiah's prayer again, verse 6 and 7. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed. We acted wickedly. We are ready to be blessed again. Now he's praying on behalf of a whole bunch of people. But it's not enough for a leader to repent It's not even enough for a leader to want his people to repent. The question is, are the people of Israel going to live that repentance? That's the question to keep in mind as we read through the story. But let's keep going. Flip over his diary to the the next page. It's the month of Nisan. It's about four months later. Fascinating to think about what he's been doing in the intervening four months. Uh, between praying for it and putting the plan into action. Uh, But we simply know the outcome. Four months later, it's chapter two, as we've got it. Nehemiah is wine-waited to the king, and uh, as he's doing his job, King Artaxerxes sees Nehemiah's face. And the start of chapter two, the king asks him, Nehemiah, why do you look so sad? You're not sick. What's the trouble? Nehemiah says, verse three, why shouldn't I look sad? When the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And so the king asks, What do you want? Just ask. Miraculous, really. It's not a common event, but Nehemiah has prayed that God would grant him success with his plan, so we shouldn't be surprised that God works things in this way. Verse 4 Nehemiah's petrified, but he shoots up a quick prayer to God. And then he presents his request. Verse 5, send me home to Judah, to Jerusalem, so I can rebuild it. Now I think that send, send me, it's probably more than just a a humble language. It's probably more than just a formal request. I think he's asking that uh, the king would appoint him to rebuild. 
that he would give him the delegated authority to make that happen. Which I think explains uh, what Nehemiah asks for next in verse 7. Because otherwise it's an incredibly bold request. Verse 7, can you give me letters to the local governors on the way so I'll get there safely? Oh, oh, and what about some timber to make the city wall gates? Oh, and while I'm at it, some timber to build me a house as well. Now, if he's expecting that he's been given delegated authority, then all of those things sort of flow from that first request. But what do you know? The king says sure to all of them, just like that. Uh, It's a miracle, uh, which Nehemiah recognises. The end of verse 8, he says, because the gracious hand of my God was upon me. That's why the king granted my requests. I prayed and God did it. So off he goes, verse 9. He calls on the governors on the way. He drops in the king's letters. And so he's, uh, he arrives safely in Jerusalem. But when he does, there's one small hitch. Verse 10, these, uh, these guys are introduced, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite. They are not pleased at all. 90 years have gone by and nothing's changed. But finally, someone's arrived with a spark of initiative. And they're, not worri- and they're, and they're worried. So keep an eye on these guys. They'll keep popping up uh, like uh, mushrooms through the story. Uh, They're even in the last chapter. These are the bad guys and they'll do whatever they can to get in the way. But let's return to Nehemiah. Verse 11, he's arrived in Jerusalem. First thing he does is take a look around in the middle of the night. Practically not the best time to look around, but he wants to to just work out how, uh, how things are situated before he reveals his plans. He heads out, verse 13, through the valley gate, except it's just blackened stumps. And bit by bit, he walks on his horse around the ruins of the walls, as far as he can get, before the rubble stops him going any further. Either the horse is too fat or there's too much rubble. We're not told which, but the horse can't fit through. Uh, And then so he heads back to where he started, and it's all happening in darkness. So far, Nehemiah said nothing to anyone. But he's made his assessment, and when he does, verse 17, he gets the key leaders together. This is his willing coalition. And then he he creates a sense of urgency. Look around, he says to them. Can't you see the trouble we're in? Something's got to change. Jerusalem's in ruins. We're at the mercy of anyone that just wants to wander in and take what they like. And then he presents the vision to fix the problem. Let's rebuild the wall. We'll no longer be in disgrace. And then he equips them for the task. He energises them, verse 18. He gives them proof that God is behind his plans. He tells them about uh, the favour he'd received from the king. Uh, The group's on board. They start building. Uh, But before we find out about the building, verse 19, there are our bad guys again. Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and then another guy, Geshem the Arab. Nehemiah says they mocked and ridiculed us. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king, they ask? Well, Nehemiah's not. He's got the king's approval. Uh, and more than just the king, God is behind it. So Nehemiah tells them to get lost. You have no part in what we're doing. And then he says in verse 20, the God of heaven will give us success when his servants will start rebuilding. 
This is God's city. This is a new start. Things will be different. Now, at this point, lots of preachers will stop and say, especially uh, if the church is going to start a building program, what a fine leader Nehemiah is. He's a great motivator. We can learn 21 laws of leadership from him. Uh, He's the change agent. He's the man of faith. If we act like Nehemiah, then we can build anything. Here's the form to fill in, to sign up. Uh, We can do it. But can I just say, let's not go down that track too soon. Because there's still that question. That question that started in chapter 1, and it'll last all the way to chapter 13. It's one thing to rebuild a wall... But how do you rebuild a people? There's more to measuring progress than the height of a wall. Progress is more than the bottom line on a spreadsheet. It's one thing to lay some bricks, but what if your heart's not right? Nehemiah can organise the shovels and the pigs, but ultimate, ultimate success is about new hearts. That's the foundation. We need to keep reading and look for that sign of progress. Well, chapter 3, things are looking good. It's an exciting chapter. Everyone's doing their bit. Uh, Verse 1, we start at the sheep gate and and there's uh, Eliashib, the high priest. He's stripped to the waist. He's lugging stones like the rest of them. He sets up the doors, move a bit further along the wall. Verse 2, there's the men of Jericho. They've come in from out of town. They're giving a hand. Verse 3, the fish gate, the sons of Hassaniah. And on it goes, all the people who rebuild the city walls. We get down to verse 14 and we read about poor Malkiah. Uh, He drew the short straw, he has to fix the dung gate. And on it goes, it's a huge job, but when you break it down into bite-sized bits, everyone plays their part and the wall grows. And by verse 32, we're back to where we started. We've made it back to the sheep gate. And workers are hard at work. If we turn over to chapter uh, 4, verse 6, we see how it all was going. Nehemiah summarises and he says, We rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. Why? For the people worked at it with all their heart. It's encouraging stuff. There's progress. Everyone's giving it all they've got. And that's in spite of the opposition, the persecution and the threats, uh, which we're uh, told about at the start of chapter 4. There's Sambalat again. There's Tobiah. They're they're like a a rock in your shoe, aren't they? They're just, just irritating. They're getting a little bit more nervous as they see the wall rising and the gaps getting smaller. And so their ridicule becomes anger and mocking. Verse 2, what do you reckon you're going to do with that pile of old rocks? You can't build a wall from that. You'll never make it. Which may be true, but the thing that people need to remember, and we need to remember it as well, is that the real measure of progress is not the quality or the height of a wall. The real measure of progress is the quality of the repentance of our heart. Because that's what God's looking for. That's what God is measuring. He doesn't need rocks. He needs sincere, God-focused, repentant hearts. If God's got those things, then he can build anything. 
It's like that for us. The kingdom that we're called to be part of, it begins at the same point as it does for Nehemiah, it begins with repentance. It doesn't matter how fine our buildings are, how big our budget is, how many kids are in Sunday school, what really counts is what's on the inside. The real progress is in the hearts of people like you and me who genuinely seek first God's kingdom. Nehemiah's leadership. Uh, So many commentaries and books want to make an example of it. Well, in the end, it's not going to be measured by the quality of the working bee he can organise. It's going to be measured in whether he can bring about this genuine change of heart that he prayed for in chapter 1. A change of heart in this stiff-necked group of God's people. That'll be progress. Well, spoiler alert, we're going to see in the next few weeks what happens. Now, don't be surprised if he can't do that. Nehemiah is not the one who can bring a true repentance, who can bring circumcised hearts that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 30. Nehemiah can't do it because only Jesus can do it. Only Jesus can change people like that. The next few weeks in Nehemiah, we're going to see what true repentance looks like and what it doesn't look like. Spoiler alert number two, in the end we're going to see a story of failure. A story that's looking for a sequel, a story that's looking for a successful leader. And so we're going to be invited a long time after Nehemiah to make sure that we use a true measure of success of progress, a measure of God being at work among us. We'll be invited to focus on true measures of kingdom growth, to look for them, to aim for them, to celebrate them. To look for people responding to the gospel, people following him more closely and consistently. We celebrated it last week in the nine o'clock service when Jason and Inyang and Emma were baptised. That's growth. We're going to be looking for measures of growth like a gospel passion in people, an ache for people to see their friends hear about Jesus and respond to him. We're going to look for a growing humility at our own sinfulness, a growing restlessness at our lack of godliness and maturity. We're going to look for a growing hunger to hear God speak and to know his word. A growing joy and contentment in ourselves. We're not going to look for things to go right in life. We're going to look for a joy and a contentment when things don't go right. That'll be a sign that God's at work. We're going to look for it and aim for it and celebrate it. We're going to look for a growing love in one another. Expressed in time that we spend together. And a sacrificial service for one another. We're going to look, just like Nehemiah, for a growing prayerfulness, a growing dependence on God. We're going to look for it and aim for it and celebrate it. Those are the signs of progress that only God can bring. We can build a wall, we can grow a budget, 
But only God can build a church. As Jesus promised Peter in Matthew 16, I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, you would help us to major on the majors, uh, to focus on what really counts to you, on changes of heart, attitudes that are reflected from people becoming more like Jesus each day. Uh, And that those things that are important to you would be important to us. And we pray it for your glory and in the name of Jesus. Amen.